This last week, I asked you to fill out your annual pamphlet that we gave you at our annual meeting with names of people that you are committed to praying for, to engaging, and to hopefully, if God provides the opportunity, sharing the story of Jesus with. And I had told you that I had not done that yet, and I've been prayerfully considering who God wants me to really focus on on sharing the gospel with this year through my prayers and through my actions and, and hopefully through my words at the end. And uh, I've been wrestling with that for the last, I don't know, six weeks or so. And uh, I began to, to put down some names this week. And if you were here last week, then you know this. If you weren't here, my sermon was was really about how nobody is is unrealistic when it comes to accepting Jesus as their Savior. And I talked last week about the Ninevites in the story of Jonah and how they were, if we could put labels on people, the least likely people to accept the story that God was presenting them and to have God's grace engulf them. And yet in just five measly words by the prophet Jonah in the book that we're studying, the the Ninevites repent and they completely change their lives because they believe what God has said to them. And so last week I said that if it's possible for the Ninevites, then the person that we kind of put in our heads and say, well, they'll never, ever give their lives to God. They'll never believe the words of the Bible. Uh, that's, That's false information if we think like that. Because if the Ninevites can accept God, then those people can accept God. And they're not too wealthy or too smart or too dumb or too far from God to be engulfed by his grace. And so I had that sermon in my head and, and I try not to be a hypocrite. It's, it's one of those goals in life. There's enough hypocritical pastors and Christians out there that I, I aim not to be one. And, and so I, I was like, okay, even if, if God kind of lays them on my heart as I pray through this and they seem unrealistic, I, I still am willing to put their names on this list and really focus on praying for them and engaging them and, and hopefully sharing the story of Jesus with them. And so I'm, I'm putting names and uh, an interesting thing was happening in my mind because I couldn't, I couldn't make that excuse like, well, they'll never because I don't want to be a hypocrite. But what started to come to my mind... This is pathetic. I don't, this is not even nice to admit. I didn't realize it would be so pathetic to admit in front of people, but now that I'm up here and looking at you, it was like, well, if I am trying to lead them to Jesus, then that is going to be inconvenient. I mean, it's like, well, I don't hang out with them anyway, and so that's going to mean more time spent at Starbucks and I and less time with my wife and less time watching TV and less time playing video games and less time reading and and these thoughts were coming to my mind like well this person's good but but I only kind of know them have a neighbor and and I was like I only kind of know them and so this means like when I have friends over I'm gonna have to invite this person I hate trying to mix groups of people it's like the thing I dread most in life like I don't like to get my in-laws and my family in the same room it's getting better you know five years in or six or whatever it is now and I, I I think it developed at a young age having divorced parents and it was like the last thing in the world I want to do is see my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family in the same room even though they always acted like they liked each 
other. It's like, this is uncomfortable. And so I developed, like, this was always me, like my school people and, and like my church people and like my real friends, you know, and, and like, I, it's, and I don't like to mix people. But as I'm, as I'm writing these names on the list, it's like, this is inconvenient. Now I'm going to have to like introduce people. And what if I forget names and then I have to do that? This is, hey, this is the guy, you know, like uh, when you can't. And, and, and I'm just thinking about all these inconveniences and in putting these people on my list. And, and what I, I think, this is good news and I didn't plan it this way, but I think that what we'll see in the story of Jonah today speaks to this selfish attitude. And I think what we're going to see is that when we look at Jonah and we see how he is so ridiculous looking, that we're going to look, hopefully this is the goal kind of today, we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to kind of a little bit laugh at ourselves and a little bit recognize how horribly selfish we are when we think, man, I would love to like pray for this person and, and engage this person and share the story of Jesus with this person. I feel like that's who God has put on my heart. But, but then it's gonna like have, I'm gonna have to make some changes and I'm gonna have to do some things differently and I like my routine in my life. And, and we'll just see how ridiculous that is in us. And, and here's the thing. While I know I sound like a selfish person and I've already thrown Jonah under the bus, um, I think that the truth is that the one thing, this is, I really believe this, the one thing that is going to prevent us from reaching our goals as a church this year is not our hearts, it's not our desire to see people accept Jesus as their Savior and be involved in church and connect in deeper relationships and begin to serve God. I think that our hearts are right, and I know the people in our church, and I know that you want to see people baptized, and you want to see people grow in their faith, and you want to have deeper level relationships and see other people be brought into our fold. I think you want all of that. I think the one thing that stands in our way is you not being willing to make changes, even small changes to your life, to the things you do on a weekly basis in order to make it happen. I think the one thing that stands in between our goals, leading people to Christ, helping people believe, gather, connect, and serve, I think the one thing that stands in the way is that you and I don't want to be, I hate even saying this out loud, but inconvenienced. We want our comfort we want things to kind of go the way that they've always gone. We really, we like talking about it and we're, and we're gonna, praying about it super easy. And, and after I'm done with this sermon at the end of our service today, uh, in kind of connection to this, we're gonna, we're gonna write people's names down on a piece of paper that is framed already, that's in the back right now. And, and we're gonna write these names. So if you didn't, if you didn't remember this week to, to pray and put people down and right now then you're thinking, oh crap. Um, and, and then uh, you, can, you can think about it for the next 30 minutes or so while I talk and not think about anything I'm saying. But it's nice. It's going to be fun. We're going to put names on this board and, and, we'll, and it'll be like a rah-rah moment for our church, you know, and, and, and then you'll go home. And, and the thing that will stop you from engaging these people and from praying for these people and for sharing the story of Jesus is plain and simply, I, I think that you don't want to be inconvenienced. I know there's some people in our church who just don't care. Like, yeah, sure, people 
going to hell, no big deal, you know. Uh, I mean, if you really got to kind of their souls and you really talk to them at a deeper level. And there's some people here who, who aren't Christians and you're not living for Jesus, and so this is just so far from your thinking. But the majority of people in our church want to see people reached for Christ. They want to see Jesus' mission for the church to reach every person with the gospel and teach every person to, to get to full obedience to Christ. They want to see that but they also want to watch their shows and go out to food when they want to and hang out with the people they want to hang out with and have the fun that they want to have and keep the schedule that they like to keep. And so today, as we look at Jonah, the last chapter in the story, I hope that we'll see just almost how laughable it is that God uses this guy named Jonah. I mean, he's like a cranky guy in this story. It is like somebody you don't want to be around, somebody you don't want to hang out with. And we're going to see just how, how much of a jerk he looks like. And my hope is that you'll look inside of yourself and decide, I don't want to be a jerk like that. I don't want to be that guy that, that puts my convenience over people's souls. And, and so that's the hope. Jonah 4.1 and let me catch you up to speed. Jonah uh, had been called by God to go preach to the Ninevites. They were a bitter enemy of the Jewish people, of which Jonah was. So Jonah tried to flee from God. He headed away from Nineveh towards Tarshish. And there was a giant storm in the boat he was in. And Jonah was thrown overboard and a whale swallowed him. That part of the story you already knew. Jonah's inside the whale and he's like, God, thank you. You're so gracious. You're so compassionate. You're so kind. I love you. I will do what you want me to do. He gets puked up on shore. And then we see in chapter three that God gives him a second chance. God is a God of second chances. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh, says the, like, the, preaches the worst sermon ever, five little words. And the people say, oh yeah, we believe God. And they totally change their lives. And God, because of that, at the very end of chapter 3, relents of his anger and decides not to punish the Ninevites. And in Jonah 4, 1, we read, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. The literal translation of verse 1 is, It was evil to Jonah with great evil. Jonah is experiencing several emotions, but really at the heart of these emotions, you know, discouragement and displeasure and anger and frustration and probably worry, at the heart of all of that is that Jonah doesn't like what God has done, so much so that Jonah thinks God has done something that is evil. He thinks that the fact that the Ninevites have repented, that God has sent somebody to preach to them, that, that they may not be punished and knocked down a peg and hurt and destroyed, he thinks that, that in that, evil has happened. And so Jonah is angry. He was inflamed is another word that that can be translated. He's on fire. He's very, very upset with God. The word is used, anger of Jonah, this is interesting to me, five times in this book. He's just kind of an angry prophet. I mean, the whole time, I mean, it's only four chapters long. It's not very many verses. And Jonah is, is said to be angry five different times. Now think about the situation. Before you write Jonah off, and, and it's easy to do. He, he comes across like a jerk. He's angry that people aren't going to be destroyed. I mean, think about that. But consider this. Jonah is now part of the revival uh, of Israel's enemy. 
I mean, if you consider this, you can take, and I don't like to plug in names, but whatever you think the biggest threat is to America today, and let's pretend you had an opportunity to save this country from destruction maybe, but, but maybe just from going uh, to being destroyed economically so that they would have no way to come and, and do terrorist work in America, let's say. And you did it. Now think about you and your, your mental frame and how all of that's going to go. And the world is now going to know that you saved the biggest enemy. The world is now going to know, America is going to know, your friends and family, that they might be killed because you chose to save the enemy. And this is what Jonah's facing. He has saved the enemy from God's destruction and people are not going to like it very much. Consider this also. Jonah had been a prophet in Israel and at the time of the book of Jonah when it was written, the story, the spiritual fervor in Israel is not very good. The people are prosperous and if you go back and you study nations in general, but especially in the Bible, the Israelite nation, whenever they're prosperous, they're doing well financially, it seems like people turn their backs on God. And that's exactly the situation in Israel when this book takes place. And so Jonah has spent most of his life preaching to people that have rejected the things that he is preaching and teaching about what God would think for his own nation. He walks in, he says five measly, stupid little words, and all of a sudden people start repenting, believing God. Now I know because I preach sermons that it is frustrating sometimes When you come up with a great sermon plan, you put together the perfect sermon in your mind. It's beautiful. It's passionate. It's going to make people cry. And then you look out and nobody does, nobody reacts. They're looking at you like this is, this is, I don't care. I don't care what you have to say. I wish we'd get back to the music. This is no good. And then you come and It's been a weird week and you haven't had any sermon preparation time and you barely know the passage of scripture you're going to preach and and you show up and you kind of talk about it and you're like, dang, that was super boring. And everybody afterwards comes up to you like, wow, that is exactly what I needed to hear. This is something I've noticed. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that if I never prepared for a sermon, I would be the most awesome preacher in the world. Um, Wouldn't be very faithful to you, but, but that's the conclusion. And this, I think, is part of Jonah's frustration. I mean, he's probably written great sermons and he's preached in the temple and he's taught his people and and people are not responding and he goes in and he's like, and then people just start repenting like crazy. So he's probably frustrated about that and he's frustrated that God had not done things his way. One author said this about Jonah and his anger. It is sad to see him place limits on the same grace that saved him. And that is exactly what Jonah is doing. He's looking at the situation. He's saying, well, this is a bad situation. It doesn't seem fair. It seems like we're going to be destroyed. And yet we've seen that Jonah in the same book has been engulfed by God's grace and celebrated it, knowing that he was running from God. He was rejecting God outright. And in Jonah 4, 2, we see that he prays to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. And in chapter 2, we saw this great prayer by Jonah, and I pointed out that while it seemed really nice and really about God, uh, it was very self-centered prayer. And this prayer is even more self-centered on Jonah's part. And, and maybe uh, after I say this, you can think about your prayers and how they might sound to God, but the word I occurs in this little teeny prayer nine times. 
And so it seems like Jonah, while talking about God and saying some things about God, is really focused on himself. And you can ask yourself how often you say I and me and your prayers, but just listen to what Jonah says. And, and this is really important, what Jonah's about to say, because you need to remember that this is not Jonah being excited about God. This is not Jonah saying, oh, I love you so much, God. I have an emotional high right now. I'm just expressing this, this attitude of gratitude. He's bitterly angry when he says these words. And I think this is, this is maybe the best passage in all of Scripture for, for showing people that God is the things that, that Jonah says. And I think that because it's not said it's not said from a place of excitement or a place of happiness. It's easy to look at people when their lives are really good and they're like, oh, God is so great. He's just blessing me like crazy and go, yeah, you really just like your house, or your money or whatever. But when somebody that's just mad at God and struggling with God and hurting at deep levels says something about God as beautiful as what Jonah says here, it makes you want to believe it. Here's what Jonah says. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. That seems backwards, right? I mean, he's like, wants to die, but yet he expresses this amazing truth of God. What he says is basically a quotation from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and it was, for all intents and purposes, a creed for the Jewish people. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You can read it 10 times in the Old Testament and there's other places where it's alluded to that language about God. It's interesting because people always act like God was super angry and mean in the Old Testament and then he got really nice after Jesus came. But this was like the creed of the Jewish people before Jesus lived, even thousands of years before Jesus lived. Jonah expresses something about God, in one sentence, really, that is really the point of the whole book, that God wants to engulf all people in his grace, that he wants to relent from sending calamity, that he loves, and he loves deeply. These words, gracious, uh, it communicates God's attitude towards those who are undeserving it's benevolence in the ultimate sense, and some people have called it undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. Uh, it's really getting what you don't deserve. Compassionate can be translated many ways. It means loving or merciful. It expresses the loving compassion of a mother to her children. And it has the idea of an understanding and loving favor where you connect with the person and so you express love towards them. Slow to anger is pretty self-explanatory. It means that God is patient, that he is long-suffering, if you want to use a more biblical sounding word it really describes god as this kind compassionate person who wants to see people saved and he wants to see people succeeding god is willing to sacrifice of himself in order that he may forgive us of our sins 
Corey Ten Boom said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is still not deeper. And I watched the story I posted on my Facebook, if we are Facebook friends page this week, of, of her telling the story in her own words of meeting a concentration camp soldier. And he said, Corey, I've found Jesus and I found forgiveness in him. And he sticks out his hand to shake her hand. And she said in the three seconds that followed, she thought, this man doesn't deserve forgiveness. This man was in part responsible for the death of my sister and for the worst moments of my life. And then she realized if I can't forgive, then I don't look anything like God. She shook the man's hand. And that is the God that we serve, a God who is abounding in love to use the last word. And that word translates a Hebrew word, hesed, that's an important word in the Old Testament. And if you see grace or mercy or loving kindness or covenant love in the Old Testament, it's usually this word hesed. And it basically is, is a reference to God's love for people because of God's promises to people. Not because God has to show us love, not because God knows that we deserve love, which we don't, but because God has in his nature and his promises declared that he will love us. And this gracious, compassionate, patient, loving God relents from sending calamity on people when they repent of their sins, something that we talked about last week. And so this God replies to Jonah, but the Lord replied in 4.4, is it right for you to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah doesn't answer at all. We pick up the story in 4.5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So now he's outside of it. He's ignored God's question. He's sitting there in a shelter. It would have been a shelter like a caretaker of a vineyard would use. And uh, I couldn't just go out into the woods and make myself a shelter. But the Jewish people celebrate a holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, during that time, they remember the 40 years that the Israelite people spent in the wilderness and they actually build themselves shelters to live in. And so it would have been uh, basically leaves woven together. I think you can see a picture of it now. Um, something similar to this right here that you're looking at. And so Jonah goes out there and he builds this shelter and he's sitting under it and it's hot. That's really important. The mean high temperature in Mesopotamia has been measured at about 110 degrees. So we're like, it's hot. And he's just got leaves over his head and he's uncomfortable and he's angry and if you add hunger in there, then it's the worst day ever. I mean, Jonah's having a bad one. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about it. Literally, Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. It's the first time in the whole book that Jonah is happy angry five times, but now a plant grows over his head and it's helpful because it's providing shade and Jonah is like exceedingly happy. He's pumped up about this plant. It's quite funny little picture out there. Jonah looking down at the city, super angry. Plant grows overnight. He wakes up. He's in a great mood. And then he 
That's the worst thing ever happened. This, is, this would make me mad too. It's so easy to judge Jonah. Just put yourself in a situation, 110 degrees. You're having a bad week. You've been in a whale not too long ago and then you had to take a really long walk. And then at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. There is actually a wind today in that area that they've given a proper name to. And it contains hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin in your brain. This is true. It makes me not want to go to the Mesopotamia area. but And it actually messes with your brain in a way that it causes depression and feelings of uh, unreality and even bizarre behavior in people. This is verifiable. And so here's Jonah in a wind similar to that that's just bringing in the heat and a worm, a stupid little worm. I wonder if he stepped on it. But the worm had destroyed his plant, the very first thing that had made him happy in months. And he's angry. I mean, this is so, it's so sad. And it's funny at the same time because it's, one, it's like watching somebody trip on something. It's just you want to laugh at them. And Jonah is so angry that he wants to die. And God says again, is it right for you to be angry? That would have been it. I would have just lost it right there. I mean, I'm exhausted, I'm hot, I'm hungry. And now, God, uh, do you know, like, do you have a right to be angry? You know that feeling, right? If you're married, then you probably have heard something like that. And you know all it did to you is make you want to scream something. Like, yes, I have every right to be angry. It's your fault. And that's exactly, I just, I just picture Jonah like, do I have the right to be angry? Are you serious? And that's when he stepped on the worm right there, I'm sure. It was like, I'll show you anger. And then he says, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Jonah answers this time. He's not just walking away. Again, if you've been married, you know that feeling. You can walk away once, but then when somebody says, is it right for you to be angry? You're not walking away anymore. And Jonah's like, yeah, I have every right to be angry. Because really what he's saying to God is, you have messed this up. You have done something evil. You have made it so that I had to preach to these people who are our bitter enemy. You have saved these people who now might destroy the Israelites, your people, I mean, you took away my plant. Everything is bad, and it's your fault. It's your fault. But the Lord said, pay attention to this. This is the very ending of the book, and it's designed, the ending of this book is designed to end abruptly, most scholars think, in order that you have to listen to the words and make a decision about your life. You have to put yourself in the position of Jonah and answer really the question that God asks him uh, in, in the form of a, of a statement. But the Lord said, you have been conserved, concerned about this plant, though you did not tend or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than a hundred and 20,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. The word concerned is more accurately have compassion. You have had compassion for a plant. Should I not have compassion for these people? 
120,000 may refer to the infants and the children who literally could not tell their right hand from the left, but it probably more refers to kind of the spiritual state of Nineveh. These people were really naive when it came to the things of God. The Israelites had the word of God and the presence of God and the history with God, but the Ninevites knew nothing about the true God. And so in some ways they were like children when it came to spiritual things, not knowing what was right, what was wrong, their left hand from their right hand. And God is saying, look, you've had compassion over a plant. Should I not have compassion over the things that have been created in my image, people? And this is kind of the driving force of the story. We look at certain people, and we've covered this over the last three weeks. We look at certain people and and sometimes in our darkest moments think, I don't want them to know the grace and the forgiveness and the love and the compassion of God the way that I know it. And God is saying, man, if you've ever had a car break down and you've thought, wow, that was, I hate this. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm going to offer it as a prayer request. Then God has every right and is good to look at the things that he has created in his image, people, human beings, that are going to be destroyed and to offer his grace and his love and compassion on them. In other words, God is good to have sent Jesus, looking at the New Testament, to have sent Jesus to die for the sins of people so that they might be saved because God created and sustains human life. But I want to look at another aspect of this story, and that is the aspect that I mentioned earlier when I began. It's the aspect of this Jonah is so focused on his own comfort that he cares little about compassion. One author said this, to experience the grace of God and not be willing to tell others of his compassion is a tragedy that all must avoid. Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God or control its distribution, but they can prevent God's grace from having an effect on their own lives. I mean, can't you look? Can you, I mean, can you see? I hope you can see this. If you can't see this, then, then we need to have a, a separate conversation. But can, can we just see that Jonah being angry that people had not been destroyed and happy about a plant seems ridiculous. And then Jonah not caring that people might be destroyed, but really being upset that a plant was destroyed is ridiculous. He cares more about a plant than he does about people. And when we sit here today and we read the story of Jonah, we say, wow, how, how is that possible? I mean, how is it that this man could possibly care more about his own comfort than about having compassion on people? But then if we look at ourselves, isn't that the same thing I said earlier? I mean, when you look at your life, isn't it true that you're more concerned about your comfort than you are about having compassion for people and about pointing people towards God's compassion? There's 107 deaths per minute. I was on the most depressing website ever the other day uh, as I searched that. Basically, is a countdown of people going to hell or a count up, I guess I should say. And it tells you how many people have gone to hell 
since the time you opened the page. It doesn't make you want to stay on the page very long, and so it's not good as far as web development goes. But it's, it's pretty sobering and, and humbling thought. And this is not the sermon where I want to just come in and depress you about the amount of people going to hell. That sermon I may preach someday, but that's not my intent in telling you this. My intent is just simply to ask you, how often do you think about that compared to how often do you think about the stuff that's broken in your house or how your car's not working or how you don't make enough money or how the boss hasn't been very nice to you? How often do you think about your own comfort versus having compassion for other people, especially those who are going to hell, who are destroyed really for eternity? Colossians 3.12 makes a very simple statement to Christians. It says, clothe yourself with compassion, clothe yourselves with compassion. And are we doing that? Or, or are we clothing ourselves with comfort? Because when I look around at the American church, our church, my own personal life, I can see how I am clothing myself with comfort. I do everything I can do to be comfortable most weeks. I mean, if you looked at my week, it, it, you would probably, if you just really got to the bottom of it, and a lot of it looks really good because I'm a pastor, and it looks like it's compassionate and caring and kind and all of that, but if you really thought about it, you could boil it down like Chad wants to be comfortable. I mean, Chad wants to make sure that the church is moving forward, which makes him look pretty good. And Chad wants to make sure when he stands up on a stage, he doesn't sound like an idiot. And Chad wants to make sure that people aren't mad at him because he didn't do something this week. And then I want to, you know, have fun and spend the time doing the things that I want to do. It's, it's just, it really, if I'm being honest, it's really just about my comfort far too often. Another author said it's the choice between plants or souls. And the question that I have for you and the question that I just, I want you to think about, I want you to put in your brain, I want you to ask yourself, it's the very question that I think it will determine whether or not this year we baptize people, whether or not we have more people coming into our church and we reach our numerical goals at the church, whether or not we are connecting at deeper level relationships, and whether or not we are serving in ways that move God's kingdom forward. This is the question. Are you more concerned with comfort or compassion? Is your life driven more by compassion or comfort? Is your life driven by convenience or compassion? I believe that the very thing that will prevent us from reaching our goals, from reaching people with the gospel of Jesus is not that there's just a billion people out there that are ready to reject us. It's not that culture is too against us. The Ninevites' culture was very against what Jonah had to say. It's not that we don't care. It's not that, and this is the excuse Christians always make, I just don't know what words to say. It's not that you're not smart enough or have enough uh, biblical knowledge, another excuse people use. I think the thing that stands in between us being a church that reaches the lost and moves people forward in their relationship with Jesus and not being a church like that is whether you are willing to forsake your comforts in order to teach people about God's compassion. I mean, are you willing to invite neighbors over for dinner even though you want a night in front of the TV? 
Are you willing to call somebody up even though you've had a long day and, and you don't really feel very joyful? But are you willing to call somebody up and say, hey, I just, I'm thinking about you. I just want to check on you. Are you willing to hang out with people that you don't really like? But you know God wants you to, to share with them and to engage their lives? Are you willing to make any type of sacrifice at all so that people might hear that Jesus came from heaven to earth to die for their sins so that they might live forever in eternity? Are you willing to risk rejection? And that's how I would say, they're going to reject me, they're going to reject me, they're going to reject me. I mean, I'm thinking, like next week I'm preaching a sermon series on worry. I know how many people that's going to connect with, just about every person in our society. I know you know people who would benefit from that, but how many people have you invited and if you really got down to it, it's just a comfort and convenience thing that prevented you from inviting somebody to that sermon series next week. You go, oh, they might reject me. You go, oh, I don't really have time. I don't want to make the phone call. I got things going on right now. And you look at Jonah and you're like, how can you care more about a plant than a person? And then you look at your life and you care about all the plants. I mean, if you think about your prayers and the things that get you excited, it's about the plants like oh yeah i mean i i got a new car this tv show is really great that we just found or or man i got a raise and i'm gonna be making more money or or man i just i got a new shirt today and i'm looking cool i came to church looking cool and all the while people are not hearing about the grace of god and while jonah just He's like, How, who is this guy? I mean, come on, man. You'd be the same way. Sure, I'll preach a sermon if you're making me, God, but only if you're going to put me inside of a whale every time I don't do it. And just let me get back to the comfort of my life. I'm going to go sit up here. I'll have a nice view, and you give me shade, and that's what's going to make me happy, not the salvation of these people. And so I'm asking, That this morning when we write these names on this list, hopefully you have some names. Maybe you won't have all 10 names. These names will be here every single week and we'll be praying over them before we start church on Sundays and in our prayer meetings and uh, there's no glass in the frame so you can always add names later. So maybe you only have one or two today and you'll want to add as we go. But as, as you put these names on this list and we're asking you to make a commitment to, to really engage people's lives, and then to share the story of Jesus as you pray for them. I just need you to make a commitment this morning to say, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's inconvenient, I'm going to care more about these people's souls than I am about my enjoyment, my happiness, my success, my, you fill in the blank. And if you will make that commitment, if we will make that commitment, I think it changes everything. I really do. I don't think that the av I don't think there's any Christian who doesn't want to see people come to Jesus. I don't I don't think that can exist. It does, it's not possible. If you don't want to see people know Jesus as their savior then you're not a Christian. You already know that. I don't have to tell you. But but I think the thing that stands in the way is just we just want to be comfortable. And when we start to break that down and we start to remove it from our lives and say comfort is unimportant, then people will come to salvation like the Ninevites. I'm going to pray. Lord, I ask that we would not fit the typical American 
mold, mindset, thinking, where it's all about our comfort and our enjoyment and our happiness and it's all about us just kind of finding our own contentment, Lord, uh, and not ever thinking, Lord, about other people. And I pray, Lord, that, that every person who calls Creekside their church would make a decision, Lord, and it's a hard decision in the society we live in, God, but that all of us would make a decision, Lord, to care less about our comfort. And God, remind us that our comfort is so overrated. I mean, what's, what's underrated is the souls of people that you, God, have, have created and that you want to save by your engulfing grace. God, we'll go through this year and we set these goals, but these goals don't get accomplished, Lord, unless we make decisions to give of ourselves, of our comfort in order to reach the lost. And so I pray, God, I pray, God, that you would do that in us. It's hard, Lord, and I will be the first to admit it to you that just too often I am not a good example of this, Lord. And while I know as a pastor I can be a pretty good example of a lot of things spiritually, Lord, this is not one of them. And so I, I repent to that today, Lord, and I pray that you would change that in my heart moving forward. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not pick comfort over compassion, but you gave your life to save us. In your name, amen.